We'll open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're doing a little three-week series in response to our bibliology study that we did earlier in the summer, our summer preaching series, which was looking at all the facets, well, not all, many of the facets and dimensions and attributes of the Bible, of the Word of God, which has led to, I think, a place we need to look at as to apply, so what? What do we do about this great book that God has given us? I'm going to read the passage that we're going to be studying, and we're going to isolate in on verses 5 through 11, but I want to put the whole thing into our minds. Follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. One of the most fundamental parts of your existence, of our existence, is the ability to ambulate. I remember the first time I ever came across that verb, didn't quite know what it meant. I thought of an ambulance. But to ambulate is a medical term that just means you can walk and get around. And for the writers of Scripture, this meant walking. That's how they got around. Think about this. When we think of getting from one place to another, we usually think of cars and planes and trains and subway systems and the like. Almost the only thing that we tend to use walking for anymore is a mode of transportation to get to transportation so we don't have to walk. It was different in Bible days, very different. Oh, there were horses and camels, but those were just for the wealthy and the elite. For the most part, the way you got around was walking. 
Therefore, it makes perfect sense that walking became a a living and a vibrant metaphor, not only for navigating in the physical world, but for walking in the spiritual world and navigating in the spiritual world as well. At the heart of this chapter that we've been studying for two weeks is, is an amazing promise, but this promise is attached to the metaphor of walking in the Bible. Look carefully down at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. The promise is of a sure-footed walk with the Savior, a way to walk so that you don't stumble and ultimately you don't fall. the metaphor of walking spiritually, keeping on your feet spiritually. Now, to understand the depth and breadth of this metaphor, I want to take a quick tour with you. Just, you can write these down. I don't expect you to turn as fast as we're going to reference these. I want you to think about these metaphors that are pervasively used in the Bible. I think it'll give you some perspective on what, what God intends for us to think like when we look at growth and ambulating spiritually. Think about walking, Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now Enoch walked physically and spiritually with God. Deuteronomy 5, 33. You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live in it and it may be well with you that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. In other words, you walk in the ways of God. You walk in his commandments, which is another way of saying we obey. Deuteronomy 10, 12. Now, O Israel, what does the Lord require from you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. Psalm 15, 2. He who walks in integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart is the one that God seeks to dwell with. Proverbs 28, verse 18. He who walks blamelessly will be delivered, but he who is crooked will fall at once. Hearing the metaphor come through? You know 2 Corinthians 5, 7 very well. For we Walk by faith and not by sight. In other words, we walk by faith. We don't walk. We don't ambulate or move through our spiritual existence by what we see, but it's what we believe. Can I keep going a little bit more? This is just fascinating. Ephesians 2, 2. You walked according to the course of this world when you were an unbeliever, according to the prince of the power of the year. In other words, we lived according to his principles, Satan's principles before our faith. Ephesians 4.1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Is he talking about a stride, a way that you, you strut, a way that you, you uh, kind of walk in your uh, one foot in front of the other? And No, he's talking about how you live Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So you got that in your mind? God intends for us to move in our spiritual existence with this metaphor of walking, which means we're upright, we're making progress. But there's another additional metaphor that flows in the shadow of that 
on stumbling. Listen to these passages. Psalm 119, verse 65. To those who love your law, have, they have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. Proverbs 3.23, then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble if you're walking according to the Lord. Isaiah chapter three, verse eight, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen. Hosea 14.1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye makes you what? Stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. If your right hand makes you stumble, do the same. Pluck it out and throw it from you, cut it off and throw it far from, far from you. John eleven ten. 10, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles and the light is not in him. John 16, three, these things Jesus said, I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. 1 Corinthians 8, 13, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. James 3, 2, for we all, I love this, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. So we have walking, we have stumbling, and if you walk and you begin to stumble, there's the great danger that you will eventually fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let therefore him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Timothy 4, 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 2 Peter 3, 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Are you getting the picture? The ideal is to walk with the Lord, to keep from stumbling, because stumbling leads to falling. That's the metaphor at the heart of this passage. Peter wants us to walk in a way that we don't stumble and certainly we don't ever fall. And the application comes out of verses two and three on understanding that the knowledge of God, the knowledge of God displayed in his son, the greatest revelation of God ever, the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, God in, in flesh, that that knowledge is rooted in scripture. And so the way to keep on our feet walking and the way to keep from stumbling and certainly the way to avoid falling is to apply the knowledge of God and Christ found in the scriptures. 
Now, last line, we, tell, tell me, we broke down uh, uh, just the first few verses and looked at the provisions for a sure-footed walk. And just review, we looked at five provisions for a sure-footed walk. There's salvation. There's sufficiency, which he gave us in the knowledge of him, him and himself, his son. There's security, solidarity. We partake in the nature of God himself. And there's sanctification. We're kept from the corruption of the world that's being stained and destroyed by strong desire, by lust. Next week, by the way, we'll back up from all this and listen to Peter explain the plausibility, the why, the ultimate reasoning that we can tell our souls for walking in a way, in a way that pleases the Lord. But for our time of study this morning, we're going to allow Peter to show us the practices for a sure-footed walk with the Savior. The practices. What do you do? How do you apply the Scriptures? How do you apply the Bible? Now, th this is my, my great fear for, for our church. This is, this is my great fear for me personally. And it's this, that we would know that the scriptures tell us things that we should do sometime or someday rather than seeing that the scriptures tell us what we ought to be doing today. Let's look then at these three practices for a sure-footed walk with the Savior, a way to keep on your feet, to keep walking, to not stumble, and certainly to avoid falling. The first is cultivation. Cultivation. You can even put in parentheses self-cultivation, self-correction. Peter says, now for this very reason also. Now, if you look back up into the end of verse four, it's this idea that he wants us to escape this world that's stained and corrupted by lust. He's given us the sufficiency of the knowledge of God in verse two, the knowledge of Jesus in verse two, the knowledge of him in verse three, the granting of promises in verse four. Participation in his divine nature and escaping the corruption of the world that is drawing us in by strong desires. For that reason, Peter says also, and then this little phrase, applying all diligence. Applying all diligence. Then he begins a list. Now, this list has confused a lot of people. It sounds like that you're, um, you're, you're building a, a, a Lego kind of a, a, a statue or something that you put one thing on top of another and it eventually ends up being something. Listen to how it's, it's phrased. Applying all diligence in your faith, supply or add moral excellence. In your moral excellence, supply or add uh, uh, knowledge and so on and so on. It looks like they build on each other. Can I suggest... Please don't take too much of the chain nature of these virtues that you add one to the other and then you add one to the other. That might make you wrongfully think that you get one thing settled and you one thing that you obey, one thing you have under your control. Once that's under control, then you move to the next thing. It's a very fragmented and compartmentalized view of your faith. It doesn't work like that. They're not prerequisites that build on each other to get to the next virtue. It's more like a recipe of ingredients to add to a mixing bowl for a cake. Instead of supply or add, you can actually, when it says supply this or add that, you can, you can really uh, uh, substitute the phrase add to the mix. 
add to the mix. Now, some things need to be done in order, and the scripture tells us when they need to be done in order. I was on my own a few weeks ago, and I found a box from Costco of Ghirardelli chocolate brownies and decided to do what every man who has an afternoon to himself should do when he sees that box, and I was going to bake some brownies. I, I mean, it's got directions, why not? And so I, I made the brownies, I put it all in the bowl, I mixed it up, I put it in the oven, it came out, it smelled delicious, I did the toothpick test. <laughs> By the way, the toothpick test for brownies is you always bring them out really gooey, not really done, but that's for another time. I got them out, let them cool, was gonna cut myself a brownie and they were stuck badly to the bowl or the pan or thing, um, Pyrex, glass container you cook brownies in. And I couldn't figure out, like, these are all stuck. So I just got a spoon and started eating the top off, but <laughs> I, they were completely stuck. And I said, what, is, what did I do wrong? Well, there was an order to that, and the order was you needed to what? You've read these instructions before, haven't you? You needed to grease the pan first, which I completely skipped and went to the mixing bowl. Well, forgetting the order of that, this is more like the mixing bowl. Putting the eggs or the milk in doesn't matter in order. You just got to mix up. These are all in the mix. He says, for this reason, because of our faithful walk and the promise that will deliver us from the corruption that is rotting our souls in the world, we need to cultivate these spiritual virtues. That's, that's a word I, I like to think of. We cultivate them. It, it takes time. It takes, it's like a garden. You have to weed it. You have to water it. You have to fertilize it. You have to trim it. You have to prune it. You have to care for it. It takes cultivation. Progress in the Christian faith is not possible, look at what it says, without diligence, without effort, applying all diligence. Listen. Listen, you will not ever grow as a Christian in the way that God intends. You will never walk without stumbling and you will never walk without falling unless you are all in on your diligence. Sometimes we say Jesus isn't to be a part of your life, but the point of your life, that's, that's this. In other words, we're all in. Christ is not just our focus and our object on Sunday mornings when we're at church singing these wonderful songs and being with these wonderful people. It's all the time, 24-7, applying all diligence. And this is what we know. Peter will tell you later, he says it in First and Second Peter, that Satan is prowling around like a lion. He can't wait to see you take your focus off of Christ even for one second because what happens, verse four, the corruption that's in the world by lust will be drawn offline. You ever ridden a bicycle and you're going straight and for some reason you're distracted and you look off to the right or to the left and you feel the bicycle pull whichever way you're looking? That's exactly what's going on here. Our focus has to be riveted riveted to Christ, constantly drawn like a magnet and metal, pulled to him or our focus is gonna be off and we'll stumble. 
Now, he starts with this list of virtues that we add into the mix of our, our sanctification. First of all, he says faith, faith. Now, there's two definitions of faith from the word pistos here. It's a, it's a Greek word that can mean faithfulness, you're doing what's right and being faithful to it, or faith, full of faith, means you have content to what you believe. Lots of debate on what is he talking about here. Could I just suggest we don't have to make a choice? Our faith in Christ leads to faithful living. They go hand in glove. Both are in mind here. Faithfulness to the object of faith, Jesus himself, and faithfulness to live toward him in our sanctification. I've thought a lot about faith recently in discussions I've had with friends, with my wife, with my kids, in counseling. I'm more and more convinced that the most pervasive root, the biggest problem you and I have, this is a big statement, the biggest problem that we share that keeps us from living the Christian life we want to is trying to live by sight instead of by faith. In other words, our doubts sneak in because we can't see, touch, taste, smell, hear, feel God. Our, our, our doubts sneak in because we watch the evening news. We, we read the papers. We, we hear the pundits. And we start looking around and it makes us doubt what we believe, what we grasp by faith. If we walk by faith and not by sight, we are going to be so fundamentally different in our worldview than anyone and everyone around us. We actually know. We know before we watch the evening news, we know before we read the paper, we know that evil men will proceed from bad to worse. There's a real sense in which a Christian should never be shocked by what's going on in this world. Disappointed, yes. Grieved, yes. Shocked, we live in a broken world that's stained by sin. You increase your faith then, your ability to walk by faith and not by sight, to believe the theology that God has told us about himself and our walk in the word. You increase that, get this, by exposing your mind to scripture. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by what? The Word of God. Can we just have a, a private little uh, counseling session with each other? Both ways. I'm constantly amazed at people who tell me and how I whisper in my own ear, as it were, I just have trouble believing. I have trouble with my faith. I have trouble with my doubts. I have well, are, are you reading the Word? Well, that's the problem. I mean, my doubts keep me from that. Do you see the problem there? The word, God's word is it's powerful. It splits between joints. It splits between soul and spirit. It is so powerful. It can solve and dissolve and answer all doubts and problems in our faith. And yet we think I have to get my faith all summoned up and mustered up so that I can go to the Bible and then believe it. Now, remember what Augustine said. I believe in order to understand. I don't understand in order to believe. 
We come and we just read it at face value. Yes, this is the read our Bible more sermon. We have to. Our faith will only increase by exposure to God and his word. And it's not just a box checked in a devotion where we check it and say, I've done that for the day. Isn't God pleased with my checked box? It's reading it and looking through the text to the God who's revealing himself to us through the text. We don't want to fall a victim to what we're often accused of in Bible churches, right? Bibliolatry, where we worship the Bible instead of the God of the Bible. That can be true for some. If we ever love truth and doctrine that doesn't lead us to the one who gave truth and doctrine, we are completely off base. He starts with faith. Put this in the mixing bowl of your sanctification, of your application of scripture. You have to believe it. And the way to increase your belief is to read and hear and study and apply it. He says, add to your faith moral excellence, arete. It's a Greek word that means being above reproach, virtuous, making good moral decisions. Can I read you the dictionary on this? It was, it was painfully simple. It means this, being good and nice and kind and honorable and not doing anything that someone can accuse you of evil for. It's not a big workhorse Greek word. Moral excellence, you do what's right. Think about yesterday for a minute. Think about your Saturday. How many choices were you and I given that we had to make a decision? We had to make a flash decision either to pursue a morally excellent way in this decision or a virtuous, a a, a way that was not virtuous and led us away from moral excellence. That could have put us in a category of being reproachable. It's what you look at. It's what you think. It's how we respond. It's how we judge. Add to your faith an application that it, it makes you a better person. Jesus is far too powerful to exist in the soul of a believer without there being some moral implications and applications. That's in the mixing bowl. He also says, add knowledge. The context points back to the knowledge of God and Christ in verses two and three. The knowledge of God and Christ. We said this last week, theology, what you believe. Now, there's a lot of categories of theology. Theology proper is the study of God himself. The ultimate focus of theology proper is the person of Christ, right? He is the word of God, the revelation of God. Hebrews chapter one, verses one to three. He is the greatest revelation of God beyond the prophets, beyond the law. He is the ultimate. And Peter says, knowing what's true about God in Christ changes you. He actually says in verse three that that gives you everything you need for life and godliness. You know, the more I read that passage, you just shake your head, scratch your your temple and you go, really? Yeah, really. Let me make a bold statement that Peter himself not only would make where he's standing here today, but he has made in the Bible that you're holding. And it's this, 
You ready? There's no problem you will ever face, no problem you are currently encountering. There's no sin you will ever fight, no struggle that you will ever maintain that is not solvable by knowing something true about God and his son, Jesus. Nothing. He says he gives us everything pertaining to life, eternal life, godliness, living in a way that pleases God in the true knowledge of him. Is that, is that clear? The sufficiency of that is overwhelming. John 17, three, and this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. John records Jesus saying, eternal life is not measured by living forever, but knowing Jesus. Remember Ephesians 4, we refer to this passage so often, I, I can't, I can't get it out of my mind. It was, it's one of the most impactful phrases I think I've read in my entire Christian experience. In Ephesians chapter four, after that admonition to not walk according to the world, he says in verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't learn Christ in this way. Are you learning Christ? Not being better, trying harder, being good. Are you learning are you learning Christ? That's the knowledge that's involved here. He's not just saying stand at the library, wait till it opens and go in and start reading in the A section and read everything that you can. It's the knowledge of God, the knowledge of Christ. Are you learning Christ? Can I ask a more penetrating question? What would you say if someone sat down and asked you, what is your curriculum for spiritual development? You know, I'm amazed uh, at, at uh, sitting down and talking to, to homeschool moms with their, their curriculums. Their, you know, uh, full-time che- teachers get to do this and get paid for it. Uh, a homeschool mother who sits down and has to figure out the curriculum and, and uh, rubrics and metrics and matrix and standards and tests and evaluations and papers. It's incredible. Let me ask you this. Have you a curriculum for your spiritual life? I think some of us spend more time planning vacations than we do walking with Christ. What are you doing to learn Christ? He says to this knowledge, add self-control. Self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and Self-control. Listen, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. Walking, there's our metaphor again, with the Spirit, which leads to control of self. It's not that we control ourselves by willpower. We control ourselves by the power and the conviction and the presence and the knowledge of God in the Holy Spirit who dwells with us. It's the opposite, by the way, of the false teachers that Peter is going to spend all of chapter two describing. They have no self-control. Their, their God is their appetite. They don't know how to say no. I had a conversation with a, a friend who is, uh, has very young children and um, we were discussing what it means to say yes and no to kids and he says, what, 
how do, you, how do you say no to your kids? Maybe we were bad parents, but it was a pretty easy answer. You say no. Well, how often do you say no? Well, when they ask for wrong things, when they ask for things they shouldn't have, the exercise discipline. And then that led into, we got to a point, Kim and I did, where we wanted to say yes to as many things as we could to our kids because we said no so often. Learning to say no to yourself, though, that's a whole different category. Can you say no? Have you disciplined yourself to say no to anything that would lead you to stumble and perhaps fall? And here's my suspicion. You know what you need to say no to. I think the, if you're a child of God, the Spirit of God has led you to so many decisions where you can look at your own life and see and say, I, I know that the Lord would have me say no to this, which is part of self-control. And the other side is saying yes. Setting the alarm early to spend time with the Lord in the morning. Saying no to a television show to read your Bible. I was taught when I was a very young Christian, every no is a yes and every yes is a no. It's a great principle. Every time you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. And everything you say yes to is because you're saying no to something else. That's self-control. Next he says, perseverance. Perseverance in verse six. Standing firm in your faith over the long haul and through tough times. It's the ability to maintain your faith even when times are difficult. Don Carson says it so well. All you have to do is live long enough and you will suffer as a Christian and your endurance will be tested. It means to stand long under pressure. You add that in the mix. You don't give up. You understand that no matter how bad life looks from our side of the clouds, God has it all sorted above in heaven. You add into the mix also godliness or godlikeness. Isn't this obvious? If we're to imitate God, and one of the things we add in the mixing bowl of our sanctification is the knowledge of God. We cannot be like him unless we know what he is like. Man, how, what, is, what is God like? You want to know what the best vision, the best focus of what God is like is? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I wonder what God would do if an adulterous woman approached him with a self-justification and a, People were approaching her with condemnation. Well, we can see how Jesus responded to that. I wonder how God would respond to people who are self-righteous in their own eyes and are quick to judge everyone else but themselves. Well, we can see exactly how Jesus responded to scribes and Pharisees. Godliness comes from knowing Christ. He is our curriculum And in your godliness supply or add brotherly kindness. Now, he could have used a term that means general kindness. Here he uses brotherly kindness, which I think is specifically focused on love of the brethren, love of other Christians. We are to be 
as a group of believers, the most patient and loving people to one another that the planet can observe. You say, yeah, but there's a bunch of weird people at Mission Road Bible Church. There's some sinners at Mission Road Bible Church. There's some people who annoy me at Mission Road Bible Church. Yeah, and you're one of those people too, and so am I. And the fact that we get along and love each other and move each other to a greater Christ-likeness, that brotherly love for each other changes us and makes us more like the one who died for sinners like us, right? And in your brotherly kindness, he climaxes it with love. Is this any surprise? Is it any surprise that that the exclamation point in verse seven on this is love? It's, it's not. First Corinthians 13 says that it's the virtue of how a Christian acts with other believers. It's action, by the way. It's not feelings. Love is not a feeling. It involves feelings. Love is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. That's what love is. Are you convicted yet? How does your mixing bowl look? Uh, there, there are some things to work on. Remember, these aren't necessarily progressive where you fix one, then you go to the next and the next. Look into this list and say, wow, Lord, what do you have today, today, right now for me? These next two points flow very, very fast after that. Number two, proliferation. Proliferation, which means the spreading. He says, verse eight, if these qualities, if these Christian virtues are yours, I love this, and are increasing, you're growing, you're walking, you're making progress, they render you, they cause you to be neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. It's all about the knowledge of God in Christ. And if that knowledge of God in Christ is not making us fruitful, if it's not making us grow, if it's not making us useful, there's not real knowledge. Notice the four threats in these two verses. We might be useless, we might be unfruitful, we might be blind, we might be short-sighted, verse nine. How can we avoid being useless for the Lord, unfruitful in our walk, blind in where we're walking, short-sighted in our decision-making. How can we do that? Because these qualities are ours and they're increasing. In other words, we're applying all diligence. Back in verse five, we're aggressive, aggressive in our walking and in our growing. They're ours and they are increasing. And again, the foundation is right here in this verse. It's the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you want to be fruitful in your knowledge of Christ? I'm assuming you're here that the answer to that is yes. Do you want to bear fruit? You want to be useful? You want to have spiritual vision? Have an eternal perspective? Well, Peter gives us incredible insight into how to maintain this spiritual balance and to walk and not stumble, and certainly to avoid falling. How is it? Well, he says this happens. Look at the end of the verse, verse 9. 
If you lack these qualities, you're blind, short-sighted, having, here it is, forgotten his purification from his former sins. Titus 2.14 says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous, ready for good deeds. We won't be if we forget our purification from our former sins. Look back at verse four. Pair that with escaping, the end of the verse, corruption that is in the world by lust, by strong desire. What do we desire? What do we long for? And he tells us the, the great threat is forgetting our purification from our sins. We say this so often, I think that we don't stop to remember it, but, but would you just tune your ears for one second for something? Remembering the truth of what the gospel cost God in Christ, the purification for our sins, the death of his beloved son for us, forgetting that is what causes us to be useless, fruitless, blind, short-sighted, stumble, and ultimately fall. Doesn't that make sense why he said, I'm gonna institute the Lord's Supper as often as you do this to remember me because he knows how forgetful we are. I think there's both a positional and a practical forgetfulness. We forget that we've been saved from the corruption that's in the world, forgot that we've been purified from it. There's a practical application of that as well. You know what it's like to be filthy from a project, from doing some work around the yard, from maybe you're a roofer working construction. You know what it's like to be just filthy? And then what it feels like after a good hot shower and you're clean. Can you imagine doing that and then going out in the garden and rolling around the mud just because, you know, I'm clean and I've forgotten what it was like to be dirty? That's stupid. That's silly. That's exactly what's in play here. We've forgotten, we've been purified from the very sins that we want to pursue, the corruption of the world that's by our strong desires. We've forgotten that he forgave us by the death of his son. How do we do that? Number three, the third practice for a sure-footed walk with the Savior, cultivation, proliferation, growth. Number three is deliberation. And this is where we come together. Deliberation. Therefore, brethren, stop right there. He says this to us individually, but then he talks to us collectively as if to say, you need to be talking about this with each other. This is a corporate pursuit. No one should pursue their walk with Christ individualistically. Therefore, brethren, plural, be all the more diligent 
applying all diligence, he says, step it up even a notch from there, same word, to make certain about his calling and choosing you. This has caused no small um, amount of ink to be spilt. How in the world can you tell if you're elect? How can you be sure God chose you? It's a good question. The Bible's not afraid of it. It asks it. It's a great question. I have had so many people who've struggled with, with uh, the, uh, the glory of God in election, the glory of God in his choosing, his efficacious calling, and, and uh, 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 what he did before the foundation of the world in choosing those who would believe predestination. And they just say, it always comes down to this. It, come, it moves from the, the esoteric kind of theoretical question of what is God doing up there to this. Really what's being asked is, am I elect? Am, am I, can I be chosen? And if it's chosen, how, how, can I, how can I make myself chosen? Peter doesn't look at us and say, that's a stupid question. You know what he says? That's a great question. And I'm gonna tell you how, can, how you can tell. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. How? For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. There it is. Diligent, by the way, means be in a hurry. Hurry up. Has a time element. Be hasty. Be all the more in a hurry to make sure of your choosing. How can you know you're elect? Simply this. You act like a Christian because you love Christ based on the knowledge you gain from him in the scripture. Verse 11. For in this way, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly, here's our word again, added to, supplied to you. How can you know? Because God changed your heart. This is the same thing that, that Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Or do you not recognize this about you that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? The command of the scripture is believe, repent, follow. If you believe and you've repented and you're walking and you're following, that's proof that he's chosen. We don't look to see if God gave us the secret Christian election handshake. There's no such thing. The proof, as we used to say, is in the pudding. The proof is that you act like a child of God. It's real simple. Now, don't reverse the polarity of that where you think, well, I will act like one as much as I can. Therefore, God will look down, notice me, and then choose me. That's not what it's saying. It's saying these qualities, based on what we know of God, prove that he chose us. This is a comforting verse, not a questioning verse. And I love the fact that that entrance way, which is another way of saying our assurance, will be supplied abundantly to us because of our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what's the curriculum of your life? What is the curriculum of your life? Do you have a rubric? You know what that is? A way to evaluate, a way to measure, grade yourself? You have a syllabus? Do you know what you're going to read? What assignments you're going to give yourself? What metrics you're going to try to pass? Do you have a curriculum for growth? Because if you don't, you will not walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. And if you're not walking with attentiveness, you will stumble. And it doesn't take very much stumbling without gaining equilibrium before ultimately, ultimately you fall. Do you have an, an articulated, maybe even written down, curriculum for growth? If you don't, let me give you some good news. There are people around you who would love not only to tell you what they're doing, but to join you in pursuing that yourself. Christians ambulate. They walk they grow, they increase, not perfectly. If you were to put it on like a, a graph, if you were to look at any Christian's growth on a graph, it would, it would start here in their growth and on the way up to heaven, there would be gains. But if you would look, there would be dips and valleys and trips and stumbles and occasional falls, and, but there's pro- pro- progress in moving toward the goal. It's not stagnation. That's the application of the knowledge of God that comes from the word of God. Can I just ask you, if we really are Mission Road Bible Church, are we a people of the Bible? Is it a curiosity for our... Curiosity for our our questions to be answered? Or is it the very life-giving truth that we miss when we're away from it, more than we miss skipping a meal. How long can you go without a spiritual meal in the precious word of the living God?